This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. We don't know most things about endometriosis. You know, you're talking about progression. We don't even have any evidence that it is a progressive disease. You no longer need surgery to be diagnosed with endometriosis. Here's what's changed. That is the title of an article that was recently published and created quite a discussion on social media. So I decided to go straight to one of the co-authors, Dr. Mike Armour, to better understand his perspective and what the article really meant to say. And we did this conversation as a Zoom call rather than my typical podcast equipment because it was really just a get to know you conversation. And luckily, I asked in the beginning if I could record the discussion and we decided it should become the podcast episode. So take a listen to this insightful conversation about endometriosis. I have had, uh, I guess, a, a reasonably unusual journey. Uh, so I originally trained as a cardiovascular biophysicist, uh, which sounds much smarter than it actually is. Um, and I worked on heart disease. I, I was kind of bored with that. It was, a, you know, mostly working with animals. And, you know, I always wanted to really help people. So I left doing that and I changed completely tech, completely and went and studied acupuncture and Chinese medicine. So I did my a degree in acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine. And then at the same time I was doing that, I've always been interested in, in research. So I was working as a, as a researcher in um, the emergency department in, in New Zealand. So I'm a Kiwi, even though I live in Australia. And so then when I finished my acupuncture degree, I went into clinical practice. And one of the things that I found really interesting is when you are a student, an acupuncture student or any kind of you know, medical student or, you know, naturopathic student, you generally have to ask all of the questions, you know. So when we do our training, you know, someone comes in with a sprained ankle, you're still asking them about their diet. And, you know, one of the things we always ask was about the menstrual cycle. And, you know, I would say to, say to women, you know, how's your menstrual cycle? Oh, it's normal. It's fine. And then we do the traditional questioning, you know, pain and duration and heaviness. And, you know, often, more, more often than not, I'd be like, well, I don't, sure that is normal really and then what I started to notice was sometimes you know we'd be treating someone for something else headaches or um, some other condition and and, you know they mentioned in passing oh my periods got better by the way they're less painful or something like that and so um, it got me very very interested in a couple of things firstly how effective Chinese medicine could be in treating menstrual disorders Um, but also surprisingly how so many people didn't seem to realize that, um, you know, painful, heavy periods were not actually normal. Very common, yes, but not normal. So I guess that piqued my interest. Um, and then the last bit that happened is my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, 
um, had uh, really bad period pain um, when she came off uh, birth control. And, you know, I was quite obviously, you know, with a, a quite a strong scientific or medical science background, I was like, oh, well, this will be easy to take care of. We'll just go and we'll, you know, get the right medication and it'll all get sorted. And I was quite shocked to find that that wasn't the case. You know, it was really just non-steroidal anti-inflammatories all go back on the contraceptive pill. And we were trying for a family, well, we were starting to try for a family. So obviously the latter was not an option. And I was quite shocked about, you know, it was, she had very severe pain um, and we just couldn't get anything which would help it. Uh, I was in clinical practice at that time and I decided that I would undertake a, a PhD because I was really interested. I've, I always knew that I wanted to go on and, um, and do more research work. Um, so I, I did my PhD through Western Sydney Uni and it was in um, primary dysmenorrhea. So period, you know, uh, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, uncomplicated period pain or physiological um, period pain. After I finished my PhD, I got a job offer in Australia to work as, a, as an academic um, and so moved from New Zealand to Australia and I've been here for almost six years now. Um, and so now I'm, um, most of my work is, I guess it's split between endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain. And I do a lot of work still on um, primary dysmenorrhea and especially menstrual health literacy so um you know how do we make sure that uh, young people have the information they need to understand what's going on with their body how to manage their periods and also most importantly how to, do they know where to go and what to do if things are you know not normal and how do they know things are not normal so i'm the chair of endometriosis australia's research committee and i'm also the chair of their clinical advisory committee i'm a world endometriosis uh, organization ambassador I'm the chair of the Australasian Interdisciplinary Researchers in Endometriosis, or AIR. I'm also the academic lead for the Menstrual Cycle Research Network. Wow. You know, what's interesting to me in this women's health space is, to be honest with you, sometimes I wonder if there's a huge gap between what the researchers know and what doctors are doing. It's quite possible, especially for primary dysmenorrhea, I think, um, you know, it's really interesting because obviously, I mean, what we know in Australia is that over 90% of young people under 25 report regular dysmenorrhea. And it's Whoa. severe enough that about 30% of those miss school or university on a reasonably regular basis. And, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, there's issues with, you know, having to take time off work and also um, what we call presenteeism, which is basically, you know, you're sitting at work, but you feel like crap. And so you're not very, you know, productive. And it's like, you know, if anyone who goes to work with a cold or the flu, you know, it's the same yeah. kind of thing. Um, you're physically present, but, you know, you're not really able to work to your normal capacity. So I think, um, you know, for most GPs that I know, um, you know, primary dysmenorrhea, they tend to follow the guidelines, which is not bad, you know, so the first line of treatment is non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, um, second line of treatment or first line if they want contraception as well as the combined oral contraceptive pill or some kind of um, contraception. So those are, those are not terrible, um, you know, they are the, the current guidelines and there's evidence to support that they work, but what we find is that they don't work from, for a lot of people, they really don't work that well. Right. Or, um, 
or they work partially. And there's lots of complicated, you know, reasons for that. Some of it is that people don't take the right dose, you know, so they underdose themselves. They're worried about taking medication. Um, sometimes it's not taking the right kind. So many people take um, paracetamol, which I think is acetaminophen for you guys. Um, you know, and that's not, hasn't been shown in the research that it's effective at all for um, period pain. It's no better than a placebo. Um, so lots of stuff. So I think that part of the problem is, is that when, when people go to their GP and, you know, often they're told, well, you'll grow out of it. It's just normal. Yeah. It's part of being a woman. Yes. Most people's mums have, because it's so common, although Google is becoming more popular now. Um, yes. but, you know, when they say to their mum, I've got period pain, most often mum's going to say, well, don't worry, I had period pain too. It's normal. You know, so you get this strong kind of normalisation um, and then they go and see their GP and often their GP's like, well, it's normal. You know, we'll give you some painkillers. Um, and then, you know, if that doesn't, if that works, fantastic. But if it doesn't, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the time that's where, things seem to kind of grind to a halt and obviously that's incredibly problematic for those with endometriosis who also usually present you know with period pain for the first time so there is a, a big gap and there's also a big gap in I think what can be done from a non-pharmaceutical point of view as well you know to manage primary dysmenorrhea so there's some good evidence to suggest that you know different types of exercise not while you've got period pain, that's a bit cruel, um, but, you know, exercise done during the month, and that can be something as gentle as yoga, um, or, you know, right up to kind of going to CrossFit, depending on your inclinations, you know, has been shown to reduce pain. Um, you know, there's obviously acupuncture, there's herbal medicine, there's diet changes or supplements. So I think, you know, that's a really key part is that we, a lot of information out there which is not getting to the, yeah. to the people like you say do you know by chance for dysmenorrhea what percent tend to have endo do we know that not really but i think you know i think we like i say it's about 90 percent have dysmenorrhea about 11 percent in australia have a diagnosis of endometriosis by the age of 44 so you're probably looking at you know it's, it's probably about one in eight to one in nine so it's you know it's common now, it was interesting, you know, because the article, I will say, you know, with what I keep hearing about endometriosis is it's really hard to find. And a lot of the surgeons that I've spoken to said it took me like 200 surgeries to properly find endo. And, you know, but there's also the just because you have it, do you have to take it out? So there's this whole like, I was, I was joking, like, can you draw a decision tree for endo? And it's like, no, <laughs> it's more like a, a web, <laughs> a cobweb. Yeah. Yeah. And so if one read the article, I think the title felt so jarring that it created this crazy reaction on social media. Yeah, so I think, you know, I'm not sure if most people know, but obviously we don't choose the, you know, when, when people write an article, whether it's for the conversation or whether it's for, you know, a news piece, it's not us that chooses the title, it's the editor. Um, and so, you know, we actually pushed back to the editor and, and they said, we think it's accurate. And so we're not going to change it. And technically, they're right. It is true. It's just we wanted, I think, can't remember, we wanted to add one or two words. Um, right. So I think, you know, obviously, it's important for them to get their clicks. Um, and so, you know, they put these kind of headlines so I think probably the, the most important thing is that what we were talking about, obviously, is diagnosis. Diagnosis and treatment are not 
the same and they don't have to be. And part of the argument we're making is maybe it's not always a good idea that they are the same thing. And so that's part of the, I guess, the ongoing discussion is that, you know, is, should diagnosis and treatment come in the same package? You know, is it, should it be the same day or shouldn't it? What I've heard from a lot of surgeons is that having more information before you go in is vital. You know, the more you know about what's happening inside before you cut someone open is really important because especially with endometriosis, most endo surgeons might not be comfortable opening someone up, finding, okay, there's a lot of deep invasive um, or deep infiltrating endometriosis. The bowel is involved. You need a bowel surgeon to, to treat that. You know, unless they know that that's there, there's not a bowel surgeon kind of just hanging out you know, in the, in the operating room waiting right. to do their thing. So, you know, that usually that can mean then that obviously they will do their part, the surgery's done, and then they'll go back for another surgery with the bowel surgeon. And right. every surgery, you know, we don't want more surgeries. We want fewer, you know, the fewer surgeries, the better, because obviously not only is there risk and cost each time, but, you know, it seems like the more surgeries you have, the worst outcomes really over time. And that's what there's some preliminary data to suggest. Yes. Kind of, you know, more is not better, less is right. better in this case. So is it yeah. is it true that if someone gets surgery at a younger age, they're more likely to not have progressive endo and those who wait tend to have a worse, like, I haven't like heard data on that, but empirically with the stuff I hear, I don't know if it's the way people twist the story and based on the stories you hear, it suddenly becomes the data, but I'm yeah. curious if, if you have any facts around that. We don't know. We don't know most things about endometriosis, yeah. you know, so unpacking your last sentence, you know, you're talking about pro progression, you know, um, we don't even have any evidence that it is a progressive disease, you know, so we assume it is, um, but actually there is no real, so far, you know, beyond kind of anecdotal evidence of seeing progression in some patients, we don't have the data to say, yes, it's progressive. We don't have the data to say, and this is part of the massive issue, I think, with endometriosis and you know, the discourse on social media is that there's a big disconnect between the surgeons, the patients, or the, you know, the people with endo, the researchers, you know, a lot of the stuff that kind of comes up on social media is presented as fact. It's, it's a lot more nuanced. I think this is part of the problem is that, you know, we don't have a lot of data, you know, like for a condition which is so common and so devastating um, we know very little about this you know we don't have this longitudinal data which is what you have for most other conditions where you say okay someone you know we need to get in by age 18 and then they'll have better outcomes um, and the data we do have is kind of conflicting um, so there is one study which showed that using birth control early on in adolescence seemed to result in less endometriosis, you know, when they had less requirement for surgery and when they had surgery, less endometriosis later on, um, you know, and that's counter, you know, and then, but then on the flip side, you have a lot of people on social media saying, you know, I was put on birth control. It didn't help. And, you know, things just got worse and worse and worse. So we've got a lot of 
there's a huge disconnect between you know the research and what people are reporting and and this is really difficult because obviously there's lots of biases yes. you know and and things and this is why we do you know um clinical trials and why we do observational studies and things like that because it's hard to, to judge you know based on you know what people are reporting on social media how things are going because obviously if you are put on birth control for example and it does work and your symptoms do reduce you're probably not going to be talking about it so much on social media True. as someone who is still suffering right um, and so it's really hard you know to to say many of these things because you know it's hard to say who is the representative sample you know is it the people who don't respond to this or is it the people that do respond to this right. Um, so that's where it makes it very, very complicated. Okay. The discussion around surgery has become so, again, that's where we see the really big disconnect between the research and social media. And I don't know how to bridge that gap. And, and also, have you done research on whether or not um, endo is an autoimmune condition? Leah Hickman is doing some of that in her work. Her PhD is looking at some of that. It's definitely... Uh, I would say it's not a well accepted, it's not a, certainly not a mainstreamly accepted okay. concept at the moment. But the answer is really, we don't know what causes endometriosis. Um, there's multiple competing theories. It's like, and, and again, this kind of comes back to, you know, is endometriosis a single disease? You know, is stage one mild endometriosis? Is it the same disease as deep infiltrating endometriosis? You know, is it, and, you know, that's where it comes back to, is it progressive or is stage four, you know, the deeper thing, is it always going to be that? Is it a different phenotype? Is there some, something that causes it to be different? Um, you know, so it's likely that endometriosis, I think, based on speaking to people who are much more knowledgeable in this area than I am, is that it's likely to be quite a multifactorial cause, yeah. multiple pathways, you know, and multiple phenotypes and so probably more similar to, to cancer I guess in a way where there's lots of causes for this one overarching disease you know because we don't know what causes it this is where you know obviously everybody wants a cure um, and which is totally understandable that's what we all want um, but it's hard to cure something when you don't know what causes it in the yeah first place, I, think. I agree so back to the diagnosis versus treatment so are you getting at that ideally you would be able to diagnose without the laparoscopic surgery and go in only if needed, but what about those cases where the endo is hard to find unless you're that expert? Like you say, it's really problematic because people, I think, want a, a set answer. You should have this, but you know, every surgical, you know, gynecological surgeon I've spoken to said that is a decision for the the person to make in conjunction with their yeah. gynecologist you know and so this is where you know often on social media you know the idea that everybody has to have surgery that's really firstly who's going to do all of these surgeries and where are we going to do them um right. you know i think that's a lot of this comes from i think some you know maybe a misunderstanding or of how i mean again i can't speak to america but how the hospital system in Australia and New Zealand works is to do a laparoscopy you need a surgeon you need an anesthetist you know even for just a diagnostic laparoscopy um, that has to be done in a hospital you are not the only person who wants that operating right you know so 
it's not a lack of surgeons in Australia necessarily, which is the problem. It's that we don't, there's only so many people that can go through the hospital right. system. There's only so much space. So anything that we can do to rule, I guess what we're trying to say is if you can use another tool, a non-invasive tool like ultrasound, that's really helpful. Okay. But we shouldn't be saying, and I think we make it clear in our article, yes, ultrasound should not be used to rule out endometriosis. But if you can have something where instead of having to, you know, part of this big diagnostic delay is many surgeons and doctors are understandably reluctant to do surgery, um, you know, for the risks, the costs, but also even if you say, okay, I need surgery, I think you have endometriosis, we're going to do a laparoscopy, you know, you might be waiting four, six, nine months, you know, in in Australia um, and that's, you know, and then COVID delays on, on top of that. Yep. So I think what we're trying to say is if there's another way, if there's a biomarker, if there's ultrasound, and we can say you have endometriosis, we can see it or we can identify it, then you can start your planning process much, much earlier. And then if you want to have surgery, fantastic. But also it means the surgeon, you know, if we can get the ultrasound data, the more data the surgeon has before they go in, the better. If they can be like, oh, yeah. you know what? This is quite superficial. I know how, like, the kind of things I'm going to need to do. I can p- prepare for that. And if they like, okay, this is a very, very advanced, you know, case of deep infiltrating endometriosis. The bowel is definitely involved. I'm going to need a bowel surgeon. This is going to be a major operation. The more information from surgeons that I've spoken to, the more they know before they go in the better. So yeah. that's really, I guess, what we were trying to say is that. Yeah. And again, the holy grail really is a blood test, you know, or a saliva test. If we can, if we can do a blood test and say you have endometriosis or there's a 99% chance, that's fantastic. You know, then we can say immediately, right, what do you want? You know, here's your options. What, exactly. are, what are you going to do? Because most of the time, I think for most people with endometriosis, what they want is not necessarily a diagnosis. What they want is treatment they want to feel better yeah um, exactly. and diagnosis is obviously a crucial part of that but if we can say we can you know you can yes you you have endometriosis with a 99 chance you have it okay what do you want to do here's your treatment options and then they can say well i'm not you know some people might say right i want surgery straight away great but many people don't necessarily want that straight away they mm-hmm. might have more mild symptoms so it's about empowering patients to to make those choices you know about the bcl6 marker right the receptiva dx test have you heard of that yeah i think most most of the ones that i'm aware of they always do quite well in controlled samples it's when you have to go to a large population um you know with different presentations different you know kind of you know very diverse ages and ethnicities and things like that that's unfortunately so far that's when i've seen they all tend to kind of fall apart at that stage most endometriosis researchers i'd be really happy to to be put out of a job if there's something that you know comes along and changes things fantastic i would be more than happy to do something else every endometriosis research i know every clinician i know we all want the same thing this was wonderful. Like the work that you're doing is amazing. And, and I guess one thing I will share with you just to get you thinking about this is I'm trying to figure out the value that I can bring to the table and putting these pieces together because the podcast, I mean, it's basically what is the episode people are going to listen to, but 
um, because I'm hearing so much from so many conditions and so many experts, I'm seeing themes that run across all of them, right? Yeah, and I'm by sure. day, I'm actually a consultant for the healthcare industry. So the podcast is my side pet gig. Um, and I do want to do women's health full time. And so I've really been spending the past couple of years um, in doing this podcast, trying to figure out how can those pieces be put together to create a clear journey. And I, I kind of see the pillars of what needs to be done, like the, the research pillar, the education pillar. And just while we're talking about that, just another project that I'm leading is we're working on a project called Endo at Work, um, which has just started. And that's actually looking to develop workplace policies in Australia for a variety of industries to help support people with endometriosis at work. We will talk about leave and we'll address leave, but it's more, what can we do to support people so they can stay at work, in work, you know, do what they love, do what they want to do, not just saying, well, you can take time off, which is important and, you know, relevant for many people, but also saying, well, how can we support you to be able to be at work? What do you need? Do you need to be able to take breaks more often? Do you need to be able to, you know, work from home more? Um, do you need to have more um, ability to manage your own calendar, you know, being able to reschedule meetings and things like that? So if you wake up in the morning and you're having a pain flare, you know, would it be helpful to be able to say, you know what, I need to push everything back two hours, you know, while I get this under control. So it's about, you know, what do people with endometriosis need to, to thrive? That's awesome. I'm starting yeah. to see some of that in the US too, but I will say I do find Australia is way ahead of the game on things like this. I think we're just, I mean, New Zealand is probably usually way ahead of the game even more than Australia, except in this case, because I think smaller countries, it's, you know, New Zealand's also very progressive. Um, yes. You know, so, I, but we're small, you know, um, small geographically, but small population wise. So I yeah. think there's much less layers you know so I think it's just easier to get things done I have to say I'm grateful for the controversy because then I wouldn't have met you <laughs> <laughs> I think you know it's a shame it is it is a shame about the controversy in, in a way because I, I do think there's a disconnect there which I don't think is in and I'm not sure this would happen I guess in real life you know it would be great and that's why you know I was happy to talk to you about it because I think It'd be great to have a conversation, you know, and kind of, I guess, realize that we're all, we are, you know, all trying to achieve the same thing. And sometimes the human aspect is, is lost a bit. Yes. On social media. Agree. You know. Yeah. So I would agree. Yeah. Well, you're so kind and clearly doing the right thing with the research that you're doing and the perspective you're being, bringing to the table. And, uh, you know, collaboration is the way forward in, in women's health and in all of healthcare. So um, absolutely, you know, thanks for and one reminding thing I us should, of that. I should probably say just before I go is that it's so important. And, and one of the things we really try and do in all of our research, and I'm sure others do as well, is we have to include people with endometriosis from the community when we design our projects, when we, you know, develop them. And, you know, it's really important at the end to make sure it's translated back into changes in the healthcare system. And that last part is so challenging, but you know, the first part, we must involve people with endo, you know, in our design, in our, you know, so we're doing things that people prioritize, people want, um, you know, and it shouldn't be 
you know, it's, it shouldn't be researchers researching on people with endometriosis. It should be, it should be a co-design, a collaboration. I love that. So true. Thank you, truly. And truly thank so you welcome. for everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much.